Welcome to Data Bytes. I'm Susan Wong. And I'm Jesse Chizeski Kay. Susan and I are two statisticians, and we want to bring statistics closer to you. We will touch on topics in big data, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the list may grow. In this episode, we talk about a debate about post hoc power that's recently cropped up in the statosphere. Let's get started. Here's something that we don't see every day. A number of statisticians are lining up to call for a research paper to be retracted on the basis of using what they call a nonsense statistic. Ooh, drama. Yeah. And the nonsense statistic in question is something that maybe we don't hear a lot, not, not, not very often anyway, uh, but it's something called post hoc power. Post hoc power. <laughs> <laughs> So post hoc power is one of those quantities, like p-values, that are sometimes quoted in research articles. It's got a pretty bad reputation. All you need to do is a little bit of Googling. And you know how statistics can sometimes be blamed for twisting the truth? Well, post hoc power might just be one of those tools that can be used for twisting the truth, depending on who you ask. So before we talk about post hoc power, we probably should just start by describing what power is in general. And maybe even before we do that, we should review what a p-value is. <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a good point. They certainly are all related. So let's set the scene for a, um, for a hypothesis test where you're trying to use the data to weigh two possible descriptions of reality. Um, these descriptions we call the null and alternative hypotheses. The typical analogy for a hypothesis test is like you've got a court case. A defendant is being prosecuted in a court of law. And one description of reality is that this defendant is innocent. That's what we might call the null hypothesis. The other possibility is that the defendant is guilty. That's the alternative hypothesis. And the evidence presented in court is the data. And how the jurors decide depends on the strength of the data against the null hypothesis beyond a reasonable doubt, which we may translate to um, statistically to being less than a 5% chance of having seen such extreme evidence of guilt had the defendant been innocent. So that 5% is what's often used as a threshold or tolerance for the risk of a type 1 error that is incorrectly rejecting the null hypothesis. The p-value is the probability of observing such incriminating evidence under the assumption that the defendant is innocent. So if it is less than 0.05, for example, we would reject the null and conclude the defendant is guilty. So that's a p-value. And we've talked a lot about p-values in past episodes, so we'll leave the discussion of p-values at that. On the other hand, one might ask the question of, okay, so if the defendant is truly guilty, what are the chances we'll actually have enough evidence to trigger that 5% threshold and successfully lock away the criminal? Well, that is power. So in statistical terms, it is the probability of correctly rejecting the null hypothesis, given that the alternative hypothesis is true. So from the perspective of the prosecutors, power should be as high as possible or from everyone's perspective, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yes, uh, that's true. Yeah, high power would imply that the system is working and that we are accurately finding guilty folks to be guilty. But of course, how large the power is will be a function of the amount of evidence and the extremeness of guilt. 
the more evidence we have, the larger power would be. And the guiltier the defendant, the easier it is for him or her to slip up. So in research studies, however, we're not really talking about putting people on trial. We're oftentimes talking about things like the effectiveness of a newly created drug relative to maybe a more established drug. The same ideas carry over, however. So in this drug trial setting, we have to rewire our brains a little bit because, well, things are a little bit different. In this situation, the null hypothesis, this idea of innocence, actually translates to the new drug not being more effective than the old drug. And the alternative hypothesis relates to the new drug being more effective. So the positive versus negative kind of switches around. Yeah. So the company that puts millions of dollars into researching the new drug really wants to reject the null in favor of the alternative so that they can say that the new drug is better. They want the drug trials to have high power. But again, power depends on the amount of evidence um, that oftentimes relates to how many people were in the drug trial. And also it depends on the difference in effect between the two drugs. Not surprisingly, this is what we would call the effect size. If the new drug is markedly more effective at reducing symptoms, we won't need that many people in the drug trial to see an overwhelming average improvement. If the new drug is just a little bit more effective, then we will need a lot more subjects to see that. The usual way in which power is used is at the design stage of a particular study. The drug manufacturers hypothesize how much an effect is important enough to practically matter. And then for a given level of power, such as 80% or 90%, they back into a calculation of how many subjects they'll need to discover such an effect. Now, post hoc power, on the other hand, um, sometimes it's called observed power, as the name implies, is computed after the data are collected and the hypothesis test done. It's not computed with a specific alternative tied to your direct um, effect size, but rather computed using the observed effect size. While that does not sound like a huge difference, it is. Post hoc power is like saying, if the true effect of the drug is exactly what I observed, what's the chance I'd be able to trigger that rejection threshold of 5%? The issue with this kind of calculation is you're making a substantial assumption on the effect size being exactly what you observed. As we know, observations are noisy, so that means the calculated post hoc power could actually be way off. So what was the contentious research article actually about then? And uh, and in what way was it triggering this debate about post hoc power? Yeah, so we haven't even gotten to talking about the paper yet. This is a paper by a group of researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital slash Harvard Medical School. Um, sort of a team led by Baba Bekov Hung Shu et al. And um, their paper was called, Is the Power Threshold of 0.8 Applicable to Surgical Science? Empowering the Underpowered Study. So in this paper, these researchers looked back at a compilation of surgical studies published between 2012 and 2016. And in particular, they focused on studies that had negative results. And by that, we just mean studies that did not trigger statistical significance. So what that means Again, just to put it back in the context of surgeries, you know, having not statistically significant results would mean you didn't have enough evidence to show a new method of surgery to be provably better than an older method, just as an example. What they found, what the researchers found, was that these studies had low post hoc power, 
and hence the gold standard for a power of 0.8 or 80% in designing studies, the researchers claim, is just asking for too much. So then uh, what are the authors proposing? They're proposing that even in experiments that do not achieve statistical significance, researchers should state the post hoc power so as to give better context as to why statistical significance was not achieved. Basically, the post hoc power, the researchers say, will convey the limitations of the study. Now, it's important to point out that if you have a non-statistically significant result, the effect size is bound to be low, and that makes the observed power, or this post hoc power, also low. So to use low post hoc power to somehow justify your lack of significance is really just using circular reasoning. This is what critics are on about. Post hoc power can be wildly different from the actual power of a test, and really just can't be interpreted in the same way. So word of advice, if you are a researcher who has to rely on doing experiments like clinical trials, use power to design your study. If you don't want to end up in a whirlwind of controversy, it's probably best not to compute post hoc power for your non-significant results. Or compute it, but don't make it part of your paper. (laughs) (laughs) To understand this debate better, it's actually worth looking at some not too difficult calculations that are shown online in some blogs. We'll link a number of these blog posts. Some of them show rather nice simulations uh, that are then graphed to really show the gap between actual power and post hoc power. And one can really be quite misleading for the other. Thanks for listening to Data Bytes. If you have any questions or suggestions or comments for us, please email us at databytes.podcast at gmail.com. That's databytes with a Y. And if you want to see the numerous articles that served as reference material for today's show, please visit our website at databytespodcast.github.io. Till next time.